Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 16. Last week, I covered the region known as Transjordan, along with a whole heap of lesser-known, smaller places. This week, I'm taking a break from the geography to cover a few of the people found in the Book of Numbers. And with that, let's get started. The first person is King Sion who's been mentioned in the past several episodes. He was an Amorite king found throughout the book of Numbers. The first time when he refused Moses' request sent via messengers to pass through his country, despite assurances that nothing would happen. He was told that the Israelites would not turn aside into field or vineyard, would not drink the water of any well, and would go by the king's highway until they passed through the territory. Because of his refusal, the Israelites took up arms against him. The Amorites would lose the battle, and with that, all of their territory. According to the text, the Israelites would gain the land from the Arnon to the Jabuk, as far as the Ammonites, for the boundary of the Ammonites was strong. Israel took all these towns, and Israel settled in all the towns of the Amorites and Heshbon and all of its villages. For Heshbon was the city of King Sion of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and captured all his land as far as the Arnon. Notice that embedded in here was a little of the history of how Sion gained control of the territory by defeating the Moabites. Also, the text tells us that King Sion reigned from the city of Heshbon. Besides the mention of this in Numbers, it's referenced in a few more places in the Old Testament, including in Psalms 135, which was in awe of the power of God, recounting how he not only dealt with the Egyptian pharaoh, but also struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan and all the kings of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. I'll get to Og in a minute. Moses would allot the land of Sion to the tribe of Gad. Unfortunately, there is no reference to Sion in the outside historic record. We know a small bit more about King Og. In Numbers, he too was listed as a king of the Amorites. He was said to be the king of Bashan. Which raises an interesting question. How were both he and Sion king of the Amorites, likely at the same time? Think of the Amorites as a loosely organized ethnic group with multiple city-states. Sion would be king of one of these city-states, the one at Heshbon, and Og would be king of a different one, centered around the city of Bashan. The general thinking is that Bashan was to the north of Heshbon, both in Transjordan, nestled between the Jordan River and the kingdom of Ammon. In the text of Numbers 21, Og is defeated just after Sion. We're told that after Sion, the Israelites turned and went up the road to Bashan. After this turn, King Og of Bashan came out against them, he and all of his people, to battle at Edri, Edri was a city almost due east of what would later be named the Sea of Galilee. At the time, it was called Sea Kinneret. Back in the text, God tells Moses, Do not be afraid of him, for I have given him into your hand. 
with all his people and all his land. You shall do to him as you did to King Sion of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon. So the Israelite army killed the king, his sons, and all his people, until there was no survivor left, and they took possession of his land. Deuteronomy 3 provides a little more detail recording that. All of these were his fortress towns with high walls, double gates, and bars, besides a great many villages. And the Israelites utterly destroyed them, as they had done to King Sihon of Heshbon, in each city utterly destroying men, women, and children. But all of the livestock and the plunder of the towns they kept as spoil. And just like that, the Israelites were controlling much of Transjordan, all of this during the 40 years of wandering. And I'm going to pause here for a second. For quite some time now, I've been calling it the 40 years of wandering, but it wasn't all wandering. As you can see in this text, the Israelites were defeating the natives and taking territory, all in these several decades. Instead of thinking of it as 40 years of wandering, the more accurate representation is that they were not allowed to enter the Promised Land, to cross the Jordan River and take Canaan for 40 years. They could see it, they just weren't ready, unpausing and getting back to Og. Besides his mentions in the Old Testament, Og also shows up in Arabic literature. I'll spare you my pronunciation of how they rendered his name. We're later told, in Deuteronomy, that the territory won from Og had 60 towns, but not just any towns. These were well-fortified, walled cities. There were many other towns in the region that were unfortified. Og made his capital in the walled city of Ashtaroth. It's thought that this was located near where the ruins known as Tel Ashtera are located. These ruins include a 70-foot, 20-meter mound, evidence of some sort of buildup, potentially a high wall. The victory over Og was later recounted in both Psalms 135 and 136. Tel Ashtera is located north of the Yarmuk River. Besides numbers, Ashtaroth was also mentioned in the 14th century BC Armana letters, and it's found in several Egyptian sources, including a list of the military campaigns of Ramses III. He was pharaoh from about 1186 to 1155 BC. A couple of episodes ago, along with when I covered the history of Egypt, I mentioned that many believe Ramses II, aka Ramses the Great, was the pharaoh found in Exodus. If we stick with this, Ramses number two died about 27 years before number three took the throne. If true, then the military campaigns listed in the Egyptian records could correlate with the Exodus timeline. Back in the Old Testament, Og and Ashtaroth were mentioned in Joshua 9, though this is merely a recounting of the history found in Numbers. Then, in Joshua 13, the city is listed among those allotted to the tribe of Manasseh. Back in Deuteronomy, after the recounting of Og's defeat, we're told a bit more about the king. Now, only King Og of Bashan was left as the remnant of the Rephim. In fact, his bed, an iron bed, can still be seen at Rabbah, 
of the Ammonites. End quote. Some sources translate bed a bit differently, as his sarcophagus, by the common cubit, as opposed to the royal cubit. It is nine cubits long and four cubits wide. Recall that a cubit is estimated at about 18 inches, or just under half a meter. This would make Og's bed almost 14 feet long and 6 feet wide. In metric, it would be about 4 meters long and just under 2 meters wide. If his bed was in proportion to his body, he would have been between 9 and 13 feet tall, 3 to 4 meters. Also, this is another Old Testament reference to the mysterious reefing. I'll circle back to them later in this episode. Though the text isn't explicit, it's thought that Amos 2 may refer to Og. It reads, Yet I destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of cedars, and who were as strong as oaks. The Jewish Talmud adds to the story. It claims that Og was such a giant that he attempted to destroy the Israelites by throwing an entire mountain at the encamped tribes. But God saw it coming, and sent an army of ants that hollowed out the center of the mountain as Og held it over his head. This caused the mountain to fall onto Og's head and shoulders, and the hollowed out part was completely surrounding his head. Og then attempted to lift the mountain off of himself, but as he did, God caused his teeth to grow to the point that they became entangled with the mountain. Moses then took a stick that was 10 cubits long, about 15 feet, just under 5 meters, and struck Og's ankle with the stick, causing Og to fall down. He was so large that the fall, with his head still surrounded by the mountain, killed him. Outside of the biblical text, there have been a few uncovered artifacts that seem to refer to Og. One of these is a Phoenician funerary inscription dating to around 500 BC and uncovered in Byblos. This would be several hundred years after the death of King Og as recounted in Numbers. Byblos is a coastal city in the modern country of Lebanon. The inscription warns anyone that may disturb the particular grave site that they will suffer the vengeance of Og. Og also makes an appearance in Islam, though there his name is given as Uj ibn Anak. He's not mentioned in the Quran, but is a subject covered in their mythology. There, his mother and father were related. His mother is named as a daughter of Adam. Also in Islam, there is a story similar to that found in the Talmud of his fight with Moses. He's also said to have been a fisherman who would catch wells while standing in the ocean that came up only to his knees. He would then fry the giant whales for his meal. There are other stories in the common literature of giants who are said to be modeled after Og. In some of these, he fights dragons, and in others, he's so tall that he saves Noah, and of course the Ark and everyone and everything on it, from an impending shipwreck. The Grateful Ark occupants then fed Og through a chimney on the boat. And that's it for Og, but probably just as good of a place as any to explore the reefing. 
The word rephim can be found in the Old Testament, of course, but it's also found outside of the religious text. Sometimes you will see it as the Rephates. It refers to a race of people that were somewhere between being above average in height and actual giants. In some cases, the context also refers to dead ancestors that inhabit the underworld. Both of these, the giants and the residents of the underworld, can be found in the Old Testament. The giant reference is easy and is found in Genesis and Deuteronomy, among other places. I'll get to it in just a second. Isaiah, in chapters 14 and 26, in some translations, uses the underworld meaning. In other translations, though, the word Sheol is used, which of course was the direct word for underworld. Most of the text presents the Rephim, described as an ancient race of giants in what was Iron Age Canaan, then Israel. They were first mentioned in Genesis 14, when King Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him defeated the Rephim in Ashtaroth Karnaim. The allied kings also defeated many other regional rulers and people. Recall that Chedorlaomer met his end when he took Abraham's nephew Lot prisoner and drew Abraham's wrath. The Rephim would be mentioned again in Deuteronomy, and of course were associated with King Og. In fact, the text tells us that Og was one of the last surviving Rephim. After his death, at the hands of the Israelites, most of the remaining references to them either refer to Og, or to the Valley of the Rephim, which is where they formerly lived. They went from being giants among men, to being landmarks. They are also found outside of the text. Well, really, the references are also in the text. Before Moses and the Israelites returned from Egypt, the land to the east of the Jordan was considered by some to be the land of the Rephim. Deuteronomy 2 tells us that the Ammonites called the Rephim Zuzumim. Later, the same chapter tells us that the Moabites called them the Ilmim. As for the underworld perspective, Rephim in this regard were mentioned, or at least implied, in several parts of the Old Testament. Besides the potential mentions in Isaiah, they were also in Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and Second Chronicles. In these, they were synonymous with dead ancestors, spirits, the dead, or something called weakeners. In the outside record, the use of the word Rephim in ancient Northwest Semitic text tended to skew towards the dwellers of the underworld. There are uncovered Canaanite Ugaritic funerary texts that provide an understanding of Ugarit's cults of the dead. In that society, there were creatures called Rapiuma, thought to mean the long dead. There were other creatures for other classes of dead people, including recently departed kings. This sense of the word, though, tends to be represented by the place known as Sheol in ancient Hebrew. It also offers no explanation for physical things, like the size of Og's bed. Different Ugaritic texts, including a specific tablet dating to about the 13th century BC, use the word Rapha in association with their kings. These seem to refer to the leader of an area around the cities of Ashtaroth and Edri, Recall that King Og was said to have been from this region. The uncovered tablet 
as best as it can be translated, reads, May Rapayu, King of Eternity, drink wine. Yea, may he drink, the powerful and noble God, the God enthroned at Ashtoreth, the God who rules Edri, whom men hymn and honor with music on the lyre and the flute, on drum and cymbals, with castanets of ivory, among the goodly companions of Kothar, and may Anat, the powerful drink, the mistress of kingship, the mistress of dominion, the mistress of high heavens, the mistress of the earth. End quote. Do note that the 13th century BC is within the margin of error for the dating of the Exodus and wandering. Then there's a place in the Golan Heights, so east of the Sea of Galilee, called Ruj al-Hiri. This is a rock structure that dates to about the 3rd millennium BC and is sometimes called the Stonehenge of the Levant. Local legend has it that due to its massive size, it was built by giants. Some even claim these giants were related to Og. The region is north of the Jabak River, so in Bashan, and is known in some sources as the Land of the Reefing. Found in and around the structure are hundreds of stone tombs that date as early as the 5th millennia BC, so about 2,000 years before the actual stone structure. Such ancient rock burial tombs are rare west of the Jordan River, with the only other concentration of such megaliths located in the hills of Judah, near the city of Hebron, which is curious because this is where the giant sons of Anak were claimed to have lived. This is highly alluded to in Numbers 13, where these people were so large it made the spying Israelites seem like grasshoppers, large enough to scare them away from entering the land God had promised to them. Near Amman, Jordan, which in antiquity was known as Rabbah of Amman, was a stone tomb that somewhat matched the dimensions of Og's bed in the Old Testament. This tomb was uncovered in 1918 by Gustav Gaumann, a German Lutheran theologian and Middle Eastern researcher. Do remember that an alternate translation of bed is sarcophagus. Also recall that the passage in Deuteronomy claims the bed, or sarcophagus, could still be seen in Rabbah. Of course, this could merely be a coincidence, or a confirmation bias, but interesting nonetheless. And that's it for the reefing. I'm ending this episode with a Moabite deity, Chemosh, who was mentioned in Numbers 21, after the defeat of the king Sihon. Immediately following the Israelite victory, their singer sang, Woe to you, O Moab! You are undone, O people of Chemosh! Chemosh was also mentioned in Judges 11, but in this case, not as a Moabite deity, but as an Amorite idol. Given the interrelatedness of these cultures, this isn't surprising. Later, in the Israelite history, when the purported wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, was king, in 1 Kings 11, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who offered incense and sacrificed to their gods. This altar, or sanctuary, 
was said to have been built on the Mount of Olives. Later, in Acts 1, it's recorded that Jesus ascended to heaven from the same hilltop. These altars were demolished by Josiah. Do note that there was about 300 years between Solomon and Josiah. So, for three centuries, these altars stood outside of Jerusalem, within sight of the temple. Not only are references to Chemosh found in the Old Testament, but also on the Mesha stele. On this, King Mesha attributes his victory over the Israelites to Chemosh. Some sources regard Chemosh to be the same, or at least similar to, the other regional deity, Baal. In some cases, especially before a battle, or when other dire threats were lingering, the Moabites would perform human sacrifices to appease or win the favor of Chemosh. Recall from several episodes ago, the Canaanite deity Molech required the occasional child sacrifice, a ritual God warned the Israelites against in Leviticus 18. Back to Chemosh. If the Moabites were victorious, then they would typically build a sanctuary for Chemosh this too was referenced on the Moabite stele. And on the stele, Mesha's father's name is given as Chemosh Malek, which may translate to either Chemosh is Malek or Chemosh is king. Some think this indicates that Chemosh and Molech were the same deity. Other than that, not much is known about Chemosh, which provides a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue working through the book of Numbers. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.